Hi, welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Huddle. I'm your host, Michael Zervas, and today's guest, Sean Evans, gives us a real insight in how to build leaders, how to build teams, and how to get the most out of those two entities within a healthcare environment. It's some really interesting stuff, so stay tuned and I hope you enjoy it. It's time for the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. Presented by Encompass Medical, devoted to helping organizations succeed with customized medical practice management services. Visit EncompassMedical.com today. Now, here's your host, Michael Zerbis. Today's guest has a deep reservoir of knowledge and experience around organizational development and performance across a variety of industries, including, and maybe most importantly for us, healthcare. Nationally, he is a sought-after speaker, consultant, and coach. If that's not enough, he also has a PhD in organizational performance and change as a principal at the firm Live Best Work. Sean Evans, welcome, sir. Michael, thanks. Great to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. For the listeners, I will in full disclosure say that I've had the good fortune to work with Sean in a variety of capacities, which is, uh, and he's great at what he does and he brings a unique perspective to it. And it's why I kind of pushed him to come on the show today. He's got a a unique journey and, and Sean, maybe I'd like to start there because knowing a little bit about your personal story, you grew up in rural Colorado, around farm country, and you've navigated somehow to be this nationally sought after expert. Um, I'm not laughing because it's strange. It's just that's an unusual journey. So maybe you can help us understand how you go from bumping around on farms to flying on jets, telling people how to build, you know, great teams. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny, isn't it? I, and I'm, I'm laughing right along with you because sometimes I've, I'm not sure how I got here either. I I would say it's a lot of luck, a lot of good timing, and then just a willingness to always explore and push forward. People who I think are successful in life or, or have some success in life can always look back at two or three or four moments in their life or two or three, four people in their life that had really had a massive impact on them. And and besides my immediate family, who obviously had a significant impact. When I when I got to college, there were really two people there, professors, Denny Phillips and Ann Gill, and in their own unique way, pushed me to think differently and, and really pushed me to be on this journey I, I am now. And and really without them, you and I wouldn't be talking. I it's it's really that that distinct of an impact that those two had on my life. So how do I how did I get here? I don't know. Hard work really lucky and just having the fortune to run into some really cool people over the last 30 years. Well, that's, it's interesting because, you know, you're touching on mentorship and leadership as demonstrated to you, right? I know that you were at university ostensibly to play baseball and turned into this career and ended up getting a PhD. And so tell me a little bit about how that early mentorship maybe influenced you, how growing up on that farm area influenced you and how maybe some of that creeps into 
what you try to teach or look for or talk about? Is there a correlation or am I drawing a connection where one doesn't exist? No, and I've thought about this a lot. It's a it's a really interesting question because we've all got some pieces in our world that are influencing us. And when I think about kind of growing up on a farm and ranch and what all of that meant for the first 18 years or so of my life, here is where I'm at now with that question. I think obviously there's a work element, a work ethic element of it that comes to play that you just kind of roll up your sleeves and go to work. And, and that was kind of the ethic that my family had and, and all of that. The other thing that I had that uh, I think went in my favor was, was my father, who was an incredibly intelligent man. For whatever reason, circumstances in his life never allowed him to go to college, but, but he knew the value of it. And, and both he and my mom would kind of preach that to my sister and I about, about going to college. And I'm not sure they knew exactly what that meant, but there was always this idea that that we were going to go to school. And you're right. I, I wasn't that interested in academics in high school at all. I, I went to school to play baseball, turned out to be a lot better a student than a baseball player in college. <laughs> and it just turned out that, to be the right thing. And, you know, it, it's funny to me when you look at that, that piece of growing up, here, here, here's a good story of my dad, right? So I said, you know, dad, I, and I remember this clear as day. I said, dad, someday, you know, there's a good chance I'm going to have a PhD. And I had no clue at that point in my life, you know, what I thought about having a PhD or what that meant. And my dad said, you know, son, I hope you do. But right now, PhD stands for post hole digger. And we've got a lot of work to do. So let's get to work. And and I, I still remember that. And even today, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, we roll up our sleeves, we get to work, and we just try to make it life a little bit better for folks. It's funny because I had heard that PhD stood for piled higher and deeper, but maybe that's because I never got mine. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned a couple things in there, Sean, and about that work ethic. And, you know, I'm a kid that grew up influenced by Chicago, by the city, almost an exactly opposite experience to you. Yet there's some commonality in that my parents pushed hard on education and this idea of working hard. And, and I, I have a good friend of mine who happens to be an admissions director at Harvard. And he told me once that, you know, once the kids are applying to Harvard, they kind of all look the same on paper, yeah. right? They're, yeah. they're the outliers. But he told me that they tend to pick, if they can, the kids that come from rural environments because they have an embedded work ethic. And so it's interesting to me that, and they know that that'll help them succeed in this highly competitive environment, right? And you've identified that same thing, that grind that takes to run a farm is part of what you do and how you got to where you are. And I'm wondering now how you translate that hard work. The world is changing, right? And it seems to me anymore that hard work is only the, it's kind of the how you get in the door, but it's not the end of it. So I'm wondering, as you've been working over the last 25 years, do you see changes or have you changed in the way that you work or work with your clients, whether they're, you know, large health systems or individuals coaching them within a health system environment? Has the way that you work changed with them, either because they've changed or, you know, it's not enough just to work hard anymore? Yeah, another great question. I'd love to hear more about your because you've got a heck of a strong work ethic too, Z, from working with you. So even though you know you might not been able to see a farm from where you grew up, I, it's really the same thing. So helps to I grow think, up poor, Sean. 
Yeah, well, that's part of it right there. You, you have to work, right? That's, yeah. that's the case. Maybe, maybe that's the common denominator more than anything. Maybe. You know, but it, it's funny to me that you asked that question about how my work has changed. And I, I think as all of us get maybe a little older, a little wiser, if that's, if that's ever an, an option, I, my work has definitely changed. And, and I've always had maybe a little bit of a, a different ability than most to see the whole organization when I go in and work with an organization. And part of that does come from that farming thing where you're, you're nurturing the entire animal, the entire plant. It's not just a single thing. There's a lot that goes into making something successful on the farm. Same with an organization. Huh. But now I'm, I'm much more patient and I'm much more understanding that there is a, a cadence to things and a cadence to change. A lot of what I do is you know, working with change and, and helping either individuals or organizations get better. There's a cadence to change. And, and that's important. It, it reminds me, one of my first clients, when I was just getting out of my, my bachelor's degree, which is whole other story, was a boat builder in Amsterdam. And they were really trying to go through some training and development things. And and I don't remember much about that engagement, frankly, about what I did with them, except, you know, I couldn't understand a lot of what they were saying. But <laughs> what I did remember, and I probably, you know, I, I'm going to tell you the story, and I probably missed the whole point here, but it's really worked well for the last 30 years for me. But what I learned from them was as you're building a boat, the boat will only go as fast as the hull, the H-U-L-L, allows it to go. It doesn't matter how much how much of a motor you have in it, or big a sails or oars, that can only push the boat so hard. The boat cannot push against the water. It's the hull. And that hull speed was incredibly important. And I remember thinking there, that's just like an organization. It doesn't matter how much you do to an organization. You could be the very best at whatever. It doesn't matter how hard you push. If that organization isn't ready, or that individual, if you think about from an executive coaching, isn't ready, and they haven't really trimmed that hole and, and done that differently, it, it doesn't work. So when I go into an organization or work with individuals now, I know what the end is. I know what we're trying to get to, but I only spend probably 5% of my time on that. The rest of it is how do we adapt the hull or the organization or the individual so that they are ready to take whatever change we're giving them or whatever advice we're giving them. So that's, I think that's the major change. That's really interesting because I had a bunch of thoughts run into my head. I've never heard you talk about that before, but one of the questions I wanted to talk to you about was the unique challenges of building that change and that leadership in healthcare organizations. And as you talk about this ability to have a cadence and a rhythm, I'm reminded that a lot of our leadership in healthcare is either driven by, it's all type A's, right? It's either hard driving CEOs or directors of large divisions or physician leaders who by definition are hard driving. So it's almost what you're saying is counterintuitive to the skill set naturally or learned that all of those leaders bring, which is push hard, push fast and lean, right? And I'm hearing you say that that maybe almost can be counterintuitive. Is that just in healthcare or is that across all industries that you see? Yeah, great question. Uh, again, I, that's across all industries, and we so so you. There is definitely a time and a place for that harder driving, you know, stereotypical type A personality. There are times in organizations and times in individuals' lives, or you know, times in whatever that you you need that 
drive and energy just to get things done. And, right. and that will absolutely create some change. Uh, the, the problem is when we look at organizations, especially healthcare, because in healthcare, it's called a complex adaptive system, which simply means anything you do in healthcare somewhere is going to have major or minor impacts somewhere else along the system. And it right. just reverberates constantly. So quick change may be a very good short-term solution, but then it causes all kinds of drag. If I'll go back to my boat analogy within the organization. So you may see some benefits somewhere, but really within the organization, you just see a, ma- a massive amount of drag and and really decline. So a lot of what we do with leaders is kind of the things that got a leader, whether they're a C-level leader or VP, whatever, a lot of things that got them to where they are now, which were, you know, maybe more project management, things that really can use that type A, are not going to serve them as well when they're in a position where they've got a lot more influence scope in an organization. I'm going to drill down on that question because that's interesting. In healthcare and doing that leadership, are there any unique challenges in healthcare in working on building high-functioning teams, high-functioning systems, high-functioning leaders? Are there any differences or is it pretty much not? Nah, it's, it's the human condition and wherever you go, there are humans. And so that's what we're working with. Yeah, that's you, you nailed it. So I, that's it. And anywhere you go, organizations have really an organization is not going to run without people. And that's been, I think, the, the biggest learning for me is that maybe it should be more clear, but you you really don't get anything done in an organization by yourself. You you work through and with people and you really have to understand, you know, all the dynamics that go into an individual. And some of it's professional, some of it's personal, some of it's who knows what. And and without those elements, things just don't get done. So is empathy, is a high empathy quotient critical to good leadership, that ability to understand and understand what someone else is doing and, and going through? Is that important? I, it's, I think it's critical. I, I've got really th- hmm. three, three things that I always talk about. You know, these, these great leaders that I work with always have these kind of these three areas. And, and the first one is humility. In order to be humble, I think you have to be empathetic, right? You've got to have this this empathy and understand what's going on. So humility is number one. Number two, you've got to have courage because you know you know and and I know and every leader in the world knows that a lot of times you're out there on an island and it yep. it's scary, man. It you know you're everybody's looking at you to make a decision and you're not even sure you understand the question and and we've we've all been there so you've got to have that courage but the third one is that that perseverance and that that ability just to just to slog through when it's hard and and you you know you slipped and you fell and whatever else so i think those three areas are key and empathy back to your question is just the foundation for being for being humble to be honest with you at least that's right that's kind of my my thought process on it Encompass aims to put the provider back in control of the healthcare equation. The payer enrollment and provider privileging service takes advantage of long relationships with both private and government payers to help reduce the cost of avoidable denials. The largest denial class is a payer identified credentialing error. Encompass's team focuses exclusively on satisfying the reattestation needs, maintenance of expirables, and complete taxonomy accuracy for your providers to help capture all that is due to you from each payer. 
Some of our current clients have seen their provider revenues increase by up to $50,000 a year by having the Encompass Payer Enrollment and Privileging Team focus on management of the intentionally complex and cumbersome payer enrollment process. Contact us today to learn more about Encompass's payer enrollment and privileging process and how we can help improve your revenue capture through strategic and focused payer enrollment management. For more information, go to encompasshds.com, select Credentialing and Payer Enrollment, and click the Learn More button to schedule a discovery call. That's an interesting take. To continue with the boat analogy, take you into a little bit of deeper water, and but <laughs> I'll take the heat on what I'm about to say. You know, my experience is, and I don't think I'm saying anything too controversial, but that humility in physicians isn't necessarily, they go hand in hand, right? And in fact, I would argue that the system of building a physician to some degree breeds out the overly humble person and can favor disproportionately those who are maybe less humble. And so, do you find that that's a trait that you're having to teach physician leaders or maybe I'm being unfair, but I, I see a disconnect there with some of the physicians and physician profiles I've worked with over the years. Yeah, so it is. If I go to the ER and I've got life-threatening, I, you know, humility is probably not one of the traits that, that I'm going to value as a patient at that point. You know, I want Absolutely not. <laughs> and, and, and so I think that's incredibly valuable. So when and there is kind of that the stereotypical physician leader, the, the physician, especially you know, prior to maybe four or five years ago, physician training was really about disease states and and really making sure you go through the diagnostic process and and really having a you know a, a deep well of knowledge on the the human body, all of that stuff, and that's incredibly incredibly important. And so now when we see physician leaders, we don't take for granted that that person truly knows how to lead in an organization. And I, I always start with saying, hey, leadership is your ability to influence people and processes and remove barriers so other people can get things done. And I'm very intentional about my definition of leadership because it yeah. really puts the onus on not you as an individual doing, it's you yeah. as an individual creating an environment where others who might be actually smarter than you, which is another thing, you know, that that hyper-competitive environment does, maybe smarter you that, that they're doing. And and when physicians, there's there's usually a breakthrough and, and we're, you know, stereotyping physicians a little bit, but there's generally a breakthrough. You can almost see the weight of the world come off their shoulders when they realize they don't have to have all yeah. of the answers to organizations. And I say, look, I've been working in organizations for 30 years and I, heck, I half the time, I'm not even sure what the heck's going on in this organization. So there's no, you know, there's no pressure on you to know this. Here's, here's why you're here though. You really are good at, at diagnosing. You're really good at when you ask a question to really hear an answer and, and figure out if there's other things. And, and you know what, you're really smart about how the system works. And, and, and also, you know, you've really got a, a keen uh, eye on, what patients are going through and what staff are going through and and what the physician is going through with all the changes. That's the knowledge we need. Let us help you use that knowledge to influence in an organization. It's just a wonderful reframing. And, and I would echo what you said, that when I work with practices or physician groups and they're, they're so uh, conscientious and they work so hard and, and again, I'm stereotyping, but I'm just speaking to the people that I've had the great and good fortune to work with, that 
they'll try like crazy to do. Yep. You point them in the direction and they'll go through, they'll go to hell and back to get, to make it happen. And I've seen the same thing when you can say, it's okay, we're here, we got a team and you can count on them that they really do start to relax and can kind of ease into that. And I've seen that also in other leaders to, to get off the soapbox about physicians, but other leaders who have to learn how to be the facilitator, they're the point guard. They're not the, the scoring forward. They're, it's okay. It's If you can make everybody else do their jobs really well and you can help them, that's a, a multiplier effect. But I also see that that's a really hard thing to get people to see. And that's what interests me because when I was younger, the very technique that I would get to try to get people to see that would be to bulldoze it. The very thing I'm telling them not to do. You're doing. Right, of course, because I'm not that bright. But so it's almost like you have to wield soft power in order to get them to understand the wielding of soft power, right? Yeah, it's exactly right. And you nailed the word that I was looking for, that facilitator, somebody who who helps two or more people get to some common ground or whatever that definition is. And what we do a lot with physicians is we we bring them into environments that are not known, that are scary, and just have them sit there and say, you're, the only reason you're here is I just want you to see what else is going on in the organization. And I just want you to hear all of the challenges. And, and the intent is not to ask you for your thoughts or opinions, but just to, so you can see the scope of everything going on. And then we'll go back and say, okay, talk to me about what some of your thoughts were as you were hearing the nurses talk about XYZ or the rad tech. And, and almost inevitably, they're going to like, well, I, you know, I, I had some ideas to fix it. I said, great. So what questions were you going to ask a nurse or the rad tech, whatever else? And, and they don't. They're just ready to fix. And so that's when we get to the point of saying, hey, one of the techniques that you need to start doing is before you make a suggestion. And we're, we're this. And so the, the other thing with leaders that will run through a wall, like you said, they're really good at taking, <laughs> taking you know, very specific advice. Here, here's the deal. When you have five questions and you've asked those five questions of people, then you can give an answer. But not until then. And for the next week, you can't give any answers until you ask five questions. And of course, it's a little tongue in cheek and everybody are laughing. But the point is made that, hey, real good leaders ask a lot of questions before they ever make a suggestion or do anything because they know how complex the issues are. You know, it's that Dunning-Kruger conundrum, right, is that the true experts are quiet. They ask a lot of questions because they know there's a mountain of stuff they don't know. And the people who aren't experts, right, see the problem set in a very simplistic way and tend to want to jump in and, and give answers. And like you said, in a complex ecosystem in healthcare, if you have leadership that is jumping in and giving answers and not seeing all of the both intended and unintended consequences of every decision that you make as it ripples through that that ecosystem, that's how things get going south pretty quick. And it's it's hard to help people see that Dunning-Kruger, in fact, because the experts tend to be quiet. They, they do. There's a kind of a term that we use a lot, and that's the you've got to develop the confidence to question. And mm. if you don't have the confidence in, in, in not knowing, which seems like a weird thing, you, you can't question. So some of the things we do with physicians is say, hey, you know, 
go ahead and, you know, be proud of what you've done, but also it's okay to be humble and be open and let people know what you're still learning. And as, when you do that, you and I both know if somebody says, man, uh, hey, Z, I'm really trying to learn this thing. Do you think you could help me? You're going to jump right in and give them like yeah. 120% to help them. You 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 go for it. And, and that's what people do. So it's uh, it's another technique we use with physicians and leaders in general. Again, we've kind of characterized physicians here, but but other leaders the same way. It's You can develop the confidence to question then that's a, boy, we know we've made a big step in, in somebody's leadership ability. Well, how important is it either positively or negatively as a leader to say you don't know? Yeah, it's incredibly important. And we uh, oftentimes will force leaders to say that. And part of it is when you can say you don't know, what you're doing is you're creating an environment for your team, which is actually more important than you as an individual, for your team to say, hey, I'm not sure, we don't know, but you know, give us a little bit, we're going to go figure out the solution instead of a bunch of people throwing out kind of answers and thoughts and opinions that really are not based on anything. So We'll always go back, say, you know, I'm not sure that, hey, that's not reflecting on me as a, a leader. In fact, that's my job is to say, I'm not sure. Let's look it out. But your your team really, really, really will appreciate that as a leader when you're able to say that. I'll tell you, Sean, it was eye opening to me the first time that I was leading a team. I was pretty raw and green and felt like I had to know all the answers. And finally, one day I just said, you know, I don't know. And, and I almost, I could watch the team take a collective like, whew, okay, the pressure's off from this maniac who, you know, everyone's got to know everything all the time. And I've carried that with me as one of the tools, especially when I go into organizations to do turnarounds, is to make it okay that we don't know, like you said. And it's not okay to keep not knowing, but it's okay to not know. And then let's use the tools we have so that we can know. Because the opposite of that is for organizations that I've found, and, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is feeling like you need to have an answer. And so you give an answer and inevitably with more information, you would have made a different answer. And then that keeps this dysfunctional cycle for this group, whatever that group is perpetuating and it starts feeding on itself. Yeah, you nailed it, Z. And, I, and I've watched you work too in, in some of the turnaround stuff. And and your strength is going into an organization and and obviously you're, you're projecting kind of confidence as an individual, but your biggest strength is to really allow that team to collectively come up with solutions to real problems, not answers to, you know, make believe. And I, you know, I, I watch you and you say, hey, look, Here's what we're trying to get to. You know, we're trying to get to this point in this time. I'm not exactly sure how we're going to get there. Let's talk through some options. Let's talk through some solutions. What do people think? And you turn it over to your team incredibly quickly. So you're brilliant at it. And and really, you mm. start to you multiply a bunch of people's brains instead of just your own in the in the solving a problem, which is true kind of lean, true lean thinking anyway, if you can. Get right. It. Yeah, I agree with you. Do you think it's important for leaders to have a clear-eyed assessment of their own abilities? <laughs> boy, that is, yeah, oh boy. Kind that of a is, loaded question. That is a loaded question. Uh, so, so you will only see 
improvement in your own leadership or others' leadership when there's an ability to get a good, accurate assessment of reality. Now, that same thing happens in organizations. So right. I always say, hey, as an organization, it's really hard to audit yourself. You know, how are we doing? Well, gosh, we're just doing so good, you know, maybe compared to where we were last quarter. But if you compare yourself to the eight other organizations that are in your market and you're still running eight, that that that's really not doing you any good. So so it is incredibly important for leaders to get an assessment. But there's a dual piece of this that is just so interesting to me and, and something that just the rest of my career I'm going to be focusing on. When a leader says, hey, I don't know, or you know what, I've, I've, got, some, I've got some work to do on myself, my own leadership ability, they have just nailed that first component of leadership, which is that humility. Humility. And, yeah. and when somebody doesn't ask that, I, I'm like, boy, you know, you can only take this person so far until they say, I'm just not sure. I got to find out. You just don't, you cannot go. And I'll be very blunt with leaders with that. And, and about half the times when I'm coaching a leader, I'll say, look, at some point, you're going to have to admit that you don't know. And it's after that, that you're really going to make some breakthrough. But until then, we're probably done. I, I'm just not the, the right person for you at this time. And and of those half, 90% of those leaders will come back at some point in the next year or two and say, all right, I'm ready. And there might've been an adverse event that happened or they got, and and they're, they're ready for it. So it, I think it's just critical. Gosh, that's really interesting. I always felt that that is a good trait, but it feels counterintuitive to me emotionally. It's almost like, well, I shouldn't be in this job if I don't know or I can't figure it out or I'm unsure, right? So that uh, you feel like an imposter. And it kind of leads me to the to, to the next question that I have for you. Do you think that can are leaders made or born? I mean, do you get that person and they've got that innate ability to 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 be humble or because of how they grew up and and, and what they've been through or can you bring somebody that uh, along the way to to become an outstanding leader, or is it like you said, you got to leave them and and wait till they're ready? Yeah, this is another great question because the first part of my career was was spent in leadership development, so I was making the the argument that leaders can be made. Right. So, so here's where I'm at now. I think great leadership, gifted leadership, whatever we call it is absolutely a an element of the environment that the leader is leading in. So you and I hmm. have very similar leadership skills and, and techniques. You and I are going to be great in a certain context, but you put us in an organization that's just going to want to stay the course, you know, not do anything different, just don't screw anything up. You and I are going to get bored pretty quickly and and probably go off the rails, you know, and, and so, get in trouble. Yeah, we'll get in trouble. So here's here's where I'm at. I, there's very few personality styles that don't work with leaders. You get a narcissistic individual. It's very hard to make them the most effective leader they can be. They may be an effective leader. And that's what I tell people is that, you know, just because you're an effective leader, it doesn't mean you couldn't be a, just a, a super or a great leader. So I think there's a couple of things. I I have seen leaders from every single walk of life. I've seen leaders from every part of the country, you know, everything and, and everybody at one point or another, those who are truly great leaders, has had 
some ability or something in their world where they have truly taken on some learning and some education. They've had that experience that's kind of humbled them and, and made them receptive to learning. So in that case, I think, you know, they're made, but they're born with maybe an ability to open their eyes. So it's really a, you know, it's a chicken yeah. and egg question for sure. And uh, I yep. don't have a good answer without a doubt. But But it's interesting to me too, Sean, that you touched on the idea that part of being a gifted leader is also making sure that you're in the right environment that you can excel. And that that same idea, right, goes down to your team members. Do you have each team member working towards their values and their strengths or are we, you know, putting them in the wrong spot and then beating them up because they're not meeting objectives? Right. And so that's a big part of that leadership too, is being able to read your team and yourself and, and knowing how to slot people. I, I know it sounds horrible, but helping them find their place. No, I think that's the number one, one of the number one tools of a leader is to understand your team or the people that are going to help you achieve whatever success it is and operate from a position of strength and really putting people into different areas. And And sometimes that takes, that takes some challenge on your point because you know somebody may yeah. not be seeing the same thing Yes. And themselves that you are seeing in them. And I, I know you've done that with, with some of your folks. You've kind of promoted them into positions that w- would not be kind of a traditional career ladder, but you were definitely seeing something in them and, and they just excelled. I, I think that's absolutely critical, without a doubt. Encompass Healthcare Data Solution focuses on collecting the maximum from your revenue cycle. The revenue cycle management team regularly performs top 10% of outsourced billing companies with a clean claims rate of 98.05%, a zero paid denial rate of 0.015%, and average days in AR of less than 24 days. Your practice could go back to focusing on providing quality healthcare to your patients without the nagging concern of leaving real dollars on the table. Encompass's revenue cycle management solution provides unparalleled visibility and control into your revenues by providing a comprehensive dashboard and reporting system. The same reporting and dashboard system that the Encompass team uses to manage itself. Like most other revenue cycle vendors, Encompass only gets paid on net collections. Unlike other companies, they have a highly developed and unique denials management system that helps to ensure that your practice gets every penny that you've earned. For more information, go to EncompassHDS.com, select Revenue Cycle Management, and click the Learn More button to schedule your discovery call today. It's so hard because personally, I when I'm working with team or teams or team members, I don't have an absolute belief that what I'm seeing is 100% accurate. And so that's being out on a limb a little bit too, is to, you're taking this leap of faith to say, hey, Sean, I think you might be, you seem to do this and you do well at this. In these areas of your work, you're just amazing. And here's a job that is kind of more in those basic skills. That's still a leap of faith. And it's scary because for me anyways, I'm I'm messing with people's lives. That's how I think about it. I take it very seriously because if I'm wrong, and I or I think I'm right and I don't assist them and help them and nurture them on that journey and they fail. Ultimately, that's my failure. Is that the right way to think about that? Yeah, a little bit. I, I you know, not everybody's going to succeed in that. And some of this I so I get an opportunity to work with some military folks and and things like that. And, and they're, they're really good at, at being at delineating 
work that needs to be done within a team. Everybody's got a series of jobs that they need to do. And and one of the processes there in, 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 in some of these instances is, you know, at the end of the day, we don't all get to do exactly what we're great at or want to do. We, right. we first say, hey, there's jobs that we have to do and, and we're going to get these jobs done and I'm going to and I'm going to be as supportive as possible. So so I would maybe reframe your question a little bit and say, absolutely, I'm going to assess my team the best I can, but I can only assess that team and put them in things that need to get done within the organization that are going to get whatever this thing is done. And then I had that conversation with people too. I'm saying, hey, hey Z, you know what? Look, I know that maybe sitting down and, and working through a spreadsheet for eight hours isn't going to really thrill you. And it, and it, you know, and I'm going to put you on a first floor so you don't jump out the window. And then I'm going right. to do other <laughs> stuff too. But but look, I really need to get this done. Is this something you can do for me? And and if so, what do, what do you need for me to help you? And and when you can engage people in their own success, boy, they're going to thank you for the opportunity as long as you don't you know make them do something for a long time and 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 just be better off for it. And then you can then you can move on. So it's interesting if, as I listen to you talk, it's so natural for you and so uh, intuitive to navigate these spaces. And I'm reminded how it's wildly less intuitive and I'm less skilled at it than you are. And I think about that space is hard to navigate because it's a different language. And I see that what you do as you help people is you help them learn that language so they become fluent. And I'm impressed by that because it's even now when I'm trying to work on leadership and I'm working on it all the time, I feel like I'm a clumsy, you know, big oaf knocking stuff over in a small room, you know, and there's this, you demonstrate an effortlessness in a, that rhythm and a guy and, and just this, it's almost like a dance where you're not even dancing and trying. And so it's very natural and authentic. And I would argue that, which I'm speaking to, which you just demonstrated, is not teachable. (laughs) I I mean, you know, that I just don't think it is. I think you can spend 30 years on that and and you still aren't necessarily going to be that fluent. So your insights are, are great. And watching you work is is even uh, more pleasurable because every time I'm sitting with you in a meeting, I'm learning something. I'm stealing from you. I'm picking something up. I'm watching and going, huh, how he phrased that, huh? That was, huh? you know, it's, it's a, it's a master class. I'll tell you for sure. So I appreciate all the free mentoring you've been giving. <laughs> oh, it's not free. I just haven't built you yet. Well, yeah, you don't know where I am, so you're not going to get booked. So, so, Hey, I want to ask you a couple more questions and then I'm going to let you go because I'm looking and I'm, kept you here quite a while, but your insights are great. How is the pandemic affecting healthcare and leadership in healthcare? Is it, are we going to see a winnowing out of people who couldn't rise to the crisis and maybe their leadership flaws were more starkly exposed or nah, you know, it'll settle down. What's your perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. And so the the pandemic is terrible and, and nasty as it is, has been a really interesting opportunity for me to to see leadership in more of a, we don't get to see leadership in true crisis necessarily. Right. And, and that's a good thing. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but so we've definitely seen it in crisis over the last seven or eight, nine months. And to your point, the organizations who, who have leaders who can facilitate, because none of us, none of us has the answer to COVID, right? We, this, this hit all of us 
by surprise. This isn't anything any of us went to school for. We no. don't have an answer. So what it has allowed people to do is stand up and say, I don't know. And the leaders who say, I don't know, but we've got patients to take care of. We've got an organization we need to make sure staying safe. We've got maybe some economics that we've got to deal with. Let's all work on this collectively and facilitate it. Those are the organizations that are really starting to see some distance between themselves and others. And some examples. So, you you know, how has it changed? I, the, the amount of telehealth we're doing now, boy, yeah. push that forward by decades. You know, everybody was dabbling in it, but nobody really wanted to start with it because it took time. And if you took time, then you weren't doing the other things. But geez, that has just pushed this forward by decades. And I think we're all learning that we can do a lot more differently, you know, video or whatever else than we ever could. The, the hospitals and, and, and organizations who are separating themselves have got a great preparedness plan. And they may have had a good preparedness plan before, but now it's really solid. They're looking at things out that are just impressive. I was in a meeting yesterday and and uh, the head of supplies was talking about things that he was looking at based on you know a vaccine. So the fact that he was looking at six, seven, eight, nine months, hopefully out, right. I, I was pretty impressed. So I, I think that's cool. I, I think it's an opportunity from a leadership perspective to give other providers, whether they're nurses or or uh, MPs, whatever, more opportunity to to provide care because you just can't handle everything as physicians. And and hopefully, you know, hope, again, this is me in the in the the pie in the sky. But we, we also know that as a society, if everybody can get the care they need when they need it, regardless of where they live or anything else, we're better off as a society. And and that's a massive without a doubt. That's a massive hill to climb, but. The pandemic demonstrates that more than anything that, you know, some people who, who are not getting care, not lucky enough to live in the right place or whatever it is, we've got to take care of that because that's a, that's not good as a society. You know, you're right. And it'll be interesting to see. I think that the, the truly great organizations will find ways to bond their team even further around this challenge and this uh, need to deliver that care and to take care of the communities they serve. And you'll see those great leaders shine even brighter as they rally to this challenge. I, I can tell you that I've never uh, contingency planned for a black swan event uh, like this. Yep. And I think when the dust settles, you're going to see a clear group of institutions and organizations that have far outstripped their competition because of those very things you discussed. You were in, were in complete agreement on that. Let me give um, you an example, Z, and I don't mean yeah. to interrupt you. I'm sorry. No. I was with an organization there in a, a different state, and, and, and I wasn't here when this happened, but the CEO stood up and she said, at a, at a town hall type event, and said, hey, you know, the, same thing. We're, we're facing something we've never faced. We're all trying to figure this stuff out. A couple of things we're really trying to figure out now, and, and one of them was testing. How can we get, you know, people in for testing? And at this point, they didn't even have all the testing supplies. And in this town hall where maybe, you know, a couple hundred people, a nurse stood up and she said, and thank God for her confidence. And this is when I see this in an individual, I don't care what they've done before, what they're doing now, what their title is. I'm thinking, okay, here's my next leader, right? Somebody who's this. She stood up and said, you know, there's a, there's kind of one of these Quick lube, and I don't know what the well, you know quick lube that went out. They, they all went uh, bankrupt. So there's all these buildings all over town that that really it's made for drive through. And 
And that idea so generated smart. this thing that this hospital then went out and leased these quick lube places to make these drive throughs And they had their employees out there, you know, getting stuff ready, doing some paint, getting everything else. And and the funny thing was the CFO then stands up and says, hey, wait a minute. So so wait, we could do testing and change people's oil in the car. <laughs> that was, and of course, he was joking, but that's another part of leadership is just say, hey, what a great idea, you know, and 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 so that's that's an example of a leader who did not have an answer but facilitated, and for some reason, that nurse felt you know comfortable enough and confident Empowered. enough, and secure enough to yeah. stand up, and it's they're nailing it. They're testing. They're they're nailing it. Absolutely nailing it. She felt confident and empowered yep. to talk to the CEO, yeah. but also to the public. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. That's awesome. That's a good that, culture. That, leader, that leadership team has done a phenomenal job of saying, I don't know. It's okay for me not to know. Let's all work on this together and we're going to, and, and it's a, it's a safe environment. And, and uh, there's, there's not a better example I can think of, of, of that. Well, that's a, that's a great example of culture and leadership and team. It's a great way to wrap up and I'm going to wrap up because I know on the budget we have for this show, I couldn't afford to even buy 10 minutes of Sean's time, yet he's given us close to 45 minutes uh, today. So thank you, sir. And thank you for all the knowledge you shared with us today. And, and on a personal note, thanks for all the shop knowledge you've shared with me over the years. I've tried the best I can to put it to good use. If you want to reach out to Sean directly, ask him a question or follow up, you can reach him at Sean at livebestwork.com. And that's spelled S-H-A-W-N at livebestwork, all one word, dot com. Sean, thanks for joining us today. And hopefully you'll come back and we can talk about maybe interpersonal motivations, value propositions, how to spark creativity, all that good stuff on a on an individual basis. Michael, you're one of my favorite leaders I ever get to work with. And I you're you're a pretty humble guy, but you're very good at what you do. So Anytime you ask, anything you need, we'll figure out a way. And then we'll, we'll get the real people to figure out how to get us together, which we, know <laughs> exactly. is, uh, which we know is the important piece with you and I. Exactly right. Stay safe, my friend. Good right. talking with you. Be well. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. This recent talk with Sean got me to thinking about group dynamics, collective success, and the systemic leadership problems we have in healthcare. It reminded me of a wonderful talk that Margaret Heffernan gave titled, Why It's Time to Forget the Pecking Order at Work. And in it, she relates the result of a study where egg production was measured between two groups of chickens. One group was average in their production, and one group was selected because they were super in their production of eggs. Over the course of six generations, the average chickens outproduced the super chickens. The average chickens were plump, healthy, and producing high levels of eggs. The super chickens had failed, and one of the contributing factors to this failure was that many of the super chickens had pecked each other to death, leaving only three chickens left alive. The super chickens gained their short-term success by suppressing the gains of their other flock members, and in the end, that proved disastrous for the group as a whole. This result, when juxtaposed with some seminal studies done by MIT, highlight a profound truth. MIT showed that teams that produced the best outcomes had some common elements. They all had a high degree of social empathy, 
They were egalitarian in the allocation of discussion time, and they had more women members. The best producing groups did not have the collective IQ that was the highest, nor did they have outliers that stood out like super chickens. They were average, yet somehow they produced superior results. So what does this have to do with healthcare? Well, a lot actually. Healthcare has been built around the idea that the superstars, or super chickens if you will, should get the most attention and resources, and that high levels of competition will bring out the best results. Yet despite this drive to find and reward healthcare super chickens, we are still stuck with many of the same seemingly intractable problems we've had for years. In healthcare, super chickens look like this. They don't give team members credit for the collective success. They are power hungry. They dominate conversations. They have a low empathy quotient. They are poor collaborators and they do not improve from constructive feedback. And lastly, they believe that they are uniquely capable of solving all problems. Does this sound like anyone you work with every day? It does to me. Until we change the ultra-competitive model of healthcare, whereby resource, responsibility, and problem solving are disproportionately skewed to super chickens that by definition suppress the success of those around them, we will rarely make the progress we hope for. Instead, we need to find a way within each organization to create environments where connection, unrestricted equal access to the dialogue, and group success are prized. MIT studies and chickens tell us that groups with those characteristics will solve the hardest problems the fastest. You've been listening to the Healthcare Huddle, simplifying the business of healthcare. For more information, show notes, guest profiles, and more, visit EncompassMedical.com and subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.